0: Um, good morning, Cornerstone. I love getting to worship in this in this room. There's something special about this room. Can I get an amen on that? Um, for those of, of you that I have yet to meet, my name's Gabe Kinsley. I'm one of the youth pastors here. And recently, over the months of October and November, I was gone on sabbatical. You guys know what a sabbatical is up in, up in this room? Yeah, if you guys know. It's one of the coolest things that Cornerstone allows us pastors to do once every seven years. And so this was my 14-year sabbatical that came back, but came up. But um, as my sabbatical came to an, an, an end, and it was time for me to re-enter in to come back to work, I found it extremely ironic that one of my first responsibilities back was to preach on joy during our Advent series. And the reason why I found it extremely ironic was because of the experience that I had while I was on sabbatical. And so to help you guys get a full picture of the irony, let me take you back to a few years before my sabbatical even started. Shelby and I had been planning this sabbatical for years. Again. It's one of the coolest things to experience, to be gone for two months, to get to enjoy amazing food, to get to enjoy amazing company, to recharge, to hear from the the Lord, to travel to new places in the world. Sabbatical is special on its own. But then add to it that this year, this sabbatical fell on Shelby and my 20-year anniversary. And so we started to dream We started to plan, right, months and months before my sabbatical arrived, and we decided that I would take my sabbatical over the the summer months of July and August, and then we were going to do this thing called the Camino de Santiago through Spain. Anybody know about that? Yeah. Anybody, been done the Camino in here? Okay. Do it. It's cool. But we're going to do the Camino de Santiago through Spain for our 20-year anniversary, and then after that, we'd come home, grab our kids, put them on a plane, and we were going to go to Kauai for, for three three weeks. That was the plan. we get serious, right? Our plans moved to action. we buy plane tickets to Europe. i get a Kauai VRBO lined up. We, we mapped out the route on the Camino. We know exactly where we we're going to go, where we we're going to stay. Everything was set up Went out of nowhere, you guys know what happened, a worldwide pandemic broke out and shut down all travel. So we take a deep breath, right? we go back to the drawing board, we move our sabbatical to the following summer a year out, and I begin to get reimbursed for the VRBO rentals and rebooked plane tickets, but this trip was gonna be a little bit different. See, this time I was gonna take my son on the Camino de Santiago Santiago because he would have just graduated from high school, so it was gonna be a rite of passage for us. And since I decided to do that with Jackson, Shelby and I found this other thing called the Tour du Mont Blanc. Okay, the Tour de Mont Blanc through Switzerland, Italy, France, it's a 110-mile trek at 14,000 feet. And just to give you guys a taste of how stinking cool the Tour de Mont Blanc is, I'm going to read REI's tour guide description. This is what it says. The Tour de Mont Blanc is bursting with epic alpine scenery, glaciers, mountains, rivers, lakes, meadows, and wildlife. In addition to the physical demands of the trip, the Tour de Mont Blanc also doubles as a living, breathing history lesson. You'll see churches still intact from the 18th century and walk the same paths that Roman soldiers used 2,000 years ago. But perhaps what makes the Tour de Mont Blanc most appealing is the cultural smorgasbord you'll experience as you go from country to country along the way. You'll get to enjoy croissants in France, Espresso in Italy, cheese in Switzerland. We're excited. We're stoked. And so everything's booked for the following summer, exactly a year after our trip, ready to go for round true, round two of our sabbatical attempt. And that's when we find out that the trial, many of you guys know about the trial that Cornerstone has been going through. The trial is moved right smack dab to the middle of my sabbatical, the trial dates. And since I'm one of the lead witnesses, had to be there. There's no way I could get out of it. So we take a deep breath. Once again, we move the sabbatical dates to the fall months of October and November. But October and November would drastically change our plans because of the change of weather. It would be too cold to do the Tour to Mont Blanc. And because of Shelby's work schedule, she can only get like a little over a week off of of work. And so we totally dialed back our sabbatical. I was still going to do the Camino de Santiago with my son, but then Shelby was going to meet us in Paris after the Camino. And so she flies into Paris. We have two full days in Paris, when on the second day, Shelby says, her stomach starts to feel off, like it's funny, like something's wrong. We go to sleep the second night and wake up in the morning. Shelby isn't better, she's actually gotten worse. We jump on our flight from Italy, or to Italy, from Paris, where we had planned to go to to Tuscany, Florence, and then end our trip in Rome. But as soon as we landed in Genoa after an hour-long flight, Shelby was in so much pain she could barely, barely walk. And what you guys have to understand is my wife is tough. right? When I get sick, I'm a big baby, I just am. When she gets sick and she's in that much pain, I know something isn't right. By the time we get to our rental car, she's now doubled over in pain, laying on the floor, right, right in the parking lot. And I know she's either passing a kidney stone or she has appendicitis, and so we immediately take her to the ER. And once we get there, they tell me I'm not able to go in due to covid No one speaks English. I'm standing outside literally in the rain. Shelby goes four hours and is passing in and out of pain in a room with 40 other people waiting to get care. She has to scream out in pain as a nurse is passing by so she could just get pain meds. She goes a full 24 hours before seeing the surgeon. Her appendix burst and she's completely full. Her abdomen is completely full with infection. So much so that when they made the first incision, it came shooting out of her side. She spends a week in the hospital on heavy antibiotics, making sure that the infection doesn't spread. And as soon as we safely can get her home on a flight, I purchase plane tickets. We're in Frankfurt, heading to Denver. It's an 11, 12-hour flight. We're 30 minutes in the air. When the pilot gets on, he's like, "Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't want you guys to be concerned. Don't panic but we have to turn around. I cannot get my uh, wing brake to disengage. Next thing I know, we're back in Germany. But wait, my sabbatical isn't over yet. (laughs) We finally make it home. The plan was, after I got home from Europe, that I would join my buddy Rocky in California in this place called Glamis. We are going to ride sand cars through the desert. But I had received in the mail a notice that I needed to, I was being summoned for jury duty during my sabbatical. (laughs) This is all true. I'm not making this up. So we had to pick a different date to do our trip, which was just last weekend. I wake up, my buddy Rocky's house, before we make it to the desert, and I'm barely able to walk because the room is spinning and I feel like I'm about to fall over. And I web-MD my symptoms, which never do this. Just bad choice. I web-MD my symptoms, and the first thing that pops up is you could be having a stroke. And so now I'm freaking out. I'm like, Rocky, you have to take me to the hospital. And he's like, what? Why? I get to the hospital, come to find out that I have something called BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, meaning I'm fine. I'm just getting old. Can I get an amen up in here? And I have these little crystals in my inner ear. Who knew you had crystals in your ear that have broken loose and they're telling ta- my ears, telling my brain that I'm falling over, and my eyes are like, "No, you're not, dude. You're fine." And so the room is spinning. I'm freaking out. This was my sabbatical, as Gene calls it, my sad batical. <laughs> but here's the thing. Let me take you back to Italy. As I was sitting outside waiting to hear from a doctor or a nurse to help me know what was going on with Shelby, I found myself asking God, why? Why? After all the planning, after all the the dreaming, right, 20-year anniversary, why are you doing this to us? Why are you doing this to my wife? And here's the thing, I don't tell you this story so that you guys would feel sorry for me. I know many of your guys' story in this room, and I know you've gone through way worse. Many of you have endured way more pain and suffering. I know the story of humanity. There are horrible things that have happened to people in this world, right? One thing all of humanity has in common is, is that if you've lived a little life, all of us are gonna go through times of deep sadness. Or our plans go down the tube. When life takes a turn for the worse, it's not a matter of time. Right? It's coming. For those of us going through difficult times during the Christmas season, it's especially hard because everything around us is telling us that we should be happy, right? It's about presents and lights. It's about good food. It's about Frank Sinatra in the background. That's how we think Christmas, Christmas should be, and yet for many of us, Christmas is a spotlight on all that has gone wrong in our world because of the pain and suffering, the disappointments we find ourselves asking the question, why is my family falling apart? Why is my marriage falling apart? We should be opening presents together in joy, and we're not. Why can't I have kids? This isn't fair, God. I would do anything to be buying presents for my baby this year, and yet another year goes by. No children. Why is this happening? God, why did I lose my job after all the hard work to get here, all, all the schooling to get here? Now I don't have a job and the means to make Christmas what it should be. God, why is my health failing after all the the good eating, right, the the exercise? Why is my health going down the tubes? I want to be chasing my kids this Christmas, my grandkids. Instead, I'm in the hospital. God, why am I not married? All of my siblings are married except for me. Even my, my loser, you know, weird brother found someone to marry him. And yet here I am, still, another year passes. I'm running out of time. God, why are you letting this happen? Why are my kids struggling so much after all the sacrifice, all that we've done so that they could be healthy, so they could thrive? Why are they struggling with depression? Why do they hate being together as a family? If you are a human being that has lived a little life, you've experienced a few Christmases. You've all found yourself in a place where you've asked the question, God, why is this happening to me? This was not the plan. And here's the thing, as I reflect on my sabbatical, and as I think about Christmas, I think I know why. And I also think, I know some of you guys might think I'm crazy for saying this, but it goes back to the great irony that I described earlier. I think pain and suffering, I think difficult times, are a path, a direct path to our joy. When I read the Bible and and I learn about God's way, when I read the story of Christmas and, and Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ coming into the earth, I think pain, suffering, our plans going down the tubes, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, lead to our joy. Something so much more profound than happiness. That for reasons only known to God, he doesn't bring his one and only son into the world the way that I would plan it out, the way that Gabe Kinsley would dream it up, much, much like our lives, right? And the pain and suffering we go through, the letdowns and disappointments, for some reason, it's in the same context that God, Jesus, in the flesh, comes into the world. He comes into the world through pain and suffering for the distinct purpose to allow himself to go through pain and suffering. That is a profound thought. It's a profound truth worth understanding. I mean, just look at the way God plans it out. The story of Christmas. It starts off with dashing of plans. The dashing of plans, right? That God sends an angel to Mary to essentially say, look, I know you're a virgin. I know you have big plans to marry this guy named Joseph, but I'm gonna tell you all those plans are gonna change. Matter of fact, you're about to become pregnant supernaturally and everyone around you, including your fiance, are going to judge you. You are gonna become the town disappointment Your fiance will decide to break off the marriage. I bet that wasn't a part of your plan. And then get this, while you're pregnant and extremely uncomfortable, I'm going to have you travel by donkey a few days to Bethlehem, which is going to be tough, uncomfortable. And by the way, when you get to Bethlehem, there won't be a room for you to have this baby. You'll be having your baby with the animals. You won't be at home. You won't be comfortable in your own bed. You won't be in a bed, period. You'll be on the ground with the animals. And Jesus, the king of kings, will be laid in a trough. And one more thing, Mary, Herod, he's going to want to kill your baby. So you're going to have to flee for your lives and live in a land that you and your husband are unfamiliar with to protect your child's life. But Mary, ultimately, in the end, you're going to have to do something no parent should ever have to do. You're going to have to bury your child you will endure the gut-wrenching pain of watching the child you gave birth to die. I mean, is this not completely fascinating to you? That the same God who has the power to part the seas, to create the heavens and the earth, to supernaturally impregnate Mary, could have sent an angel to the whole community and said, hey, don't be mad at her. Like, this is my plan. This is my doing. But he doesn't. Sends just an angel to Joseph. This same God doesn't stop the decree to make Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem. He allows it. He allows for Mary to have to travel days on the back of a donkey late in her pregnancy. He doesn't send an angel ahead to tell the owner of the inn to get ready for, you know, like the the king of kings is coming. Get the room ready. Savior of the the world is not on the way. God instead allows for all of the rooms to be totally full. He doesn't take out Herod or send an angel to Herod. Tell him, hey, leave my baby alone. No, he allows for her to chase after Mary, Joseph, Jesus. He doesn't rescue Jesus from the cross. He allows his one and only son to die. Listen, when I read the story of Jesus coming to the world, it doesn't happen the way that Gabe Kinsley would have planned it out. It's just like giving birth joy for the world. Jesus literally is birthed out of pain. And God could have brought his son into the world any other way, but he chose this way, that Jesus is literally brought into this world through changed plans and destroyed dreams, through suffering and like childbearing itself, through pain. And So for the rest of our time together, I want to look at ways in which, just like the great irony that joy, Jesus himself literally enters the world through pain and suffering, that we too can find our joy in our pain and suffering in our dashed hopes and dreams. And so point one, if you want to experience joy in your pain and suffering, you first must acknowledge it, meaning you must learn to mourn. Joy is birthed out of mourning. Psalms 126, five through six says this, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This passage isn't saying that joy comes after the sorrow. No, it literally says the tears, the mourning are the seed that will produce a harvest of joy. This passage is saying that joy quite literally grows out of your tears. How does that happen? How does mourning reap a harvest of joy? I would say probably many ways, but I want to look at three. First, mourning forces us to acknowledge that something is wrong, meaning we live in reality. You see, I think one of the reasons why God brings Jesus into the world in, which, in the way in which he does is to point out that there's something desperately wrong with this world. That it's in the beginning, right? In the beginning, pain and childbirth wasn't a thing. That because sin enters into the world, pain and suffering entered into the world. And now the Savior of the world will enter our pain and suffering through the pain and suffering of childbirth. As a great acknowledgement that the world is broken. Many of us know the story of Jesus and Lazarus. The story of Jesus and his buddy that dies. And he knows he's about to raise his buddy from the dead. He knows there's going to be this extravagant celebration after he raises him to the bed from, from, from the grave, Right? raises him from the dead but he doesn't bypass mourning it literally says that that jesus weeps he weeps why because death is wrong it's not meant to be we aren't meant to bury our children we aren't meant to bury our parents and our friends this world is broken death is one of the biggest examples of its brokenness we are made for life to the full Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, theologian, mathematician, physicist, he put it this way. No one ever complains about not having two mouths. Pascal says, you'll never hear someone say that they wish they had two mouths. Why? Because humanity, humanity knows that's not possible. Like that'd be silly, a silly thing to complain about. But all of us complain about pain and suffering. Why? Because deep in our hearts, we know we are made for something more. It was one of his greatest arguments against atheism. That the fact that you say something is wrong is evidence that there's a right. That we are made for something more. And mourning is the act of acknowledging reality. We live in a broken world. Secondly, mourning positions us to be comforted. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus weeps because he weeps with Mary. He finds Mary weeping for the loss of her brother, and he weeps with her. I don't know about you, but after going through horrible things in this world, incredible loss, there's something truly profound to weep with somebody. When Shelby and I put down our dog Obi, it was the weirdest thing we've ever experienced. Because I had spent so much money to keep my dog alive and healthy. Like he had got into giant bags of semi-sweet chocolates from Costco and almost died on multiple occasions, you know. I'm spending all this money to have his stomach pumped out. We spent all this money buying dog food and keeping him groomed. We spent all this money to keep our, our dog healthy. And all of a sudden, I'm spending money to have him put down. I'll never forget the vet coming to our house and she gives him the juice and Within seconds, shockingly, it happened so fast, his heart stopped. She checked his heart, confirmed he had passed, and then she starts asking me about cremation and, and other questions. I was like, hold on, hold on, time out. Like, I need a second. She was great. She's like, oh yeah, I'm t- sorry, hold on. Let me walk outside. She leaves the house, and Shelby and I, we wept together. There's something incredibly healing and profound to not run from the tears, to not run from the feelings, but to enter into them. And not just that, but to weep with your loved ones. Weeping with our kids before he passed. And this is incredibly profound to me. The Bible teaches us, just like this story with Lazarus, that when we mourn, Jesus literally weeps with you. That's incredibly comforting to me. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, be blessed. You will be blessed when you mourn. Why? Because you'll be comforted. By who? By him. He's our comforter. When we mourn our broken bodies, he says he weeps with us. Why? Because he, too, understands a body that's been broken, his body. When we mourn betrayal by a loved one, Jesus mourns with us because he, too, knows betrayal by a loved one. When we mourn the passing of a loved one, he too mourns with us because he's the creator of life. He knows inherently that we are made for life and yet he bore the pain of death and he weeps with us. Thirdly, mourning allows us to let go and relinquish our plans and to replace him with God's plans. To say, God, I'm gonna trust you with my life. And it's in that place of brokenness and mourning that I would argue Jesus says, okay, I have amazing plans for you. When we found out we were uh, going to have a baby, our first child, Shelby and I were 21 years old, and we were five months newly married. And Shelby was devastated. It wasn't her plans, right? And I remember her having to cry out to God in the fear of, like, what is child giving birth to a child like? In the the fear of being responsible to keep a baby alive, she was looking at me as a young 21-year-old knucklehead like, I don't know if he's going to make it. I don't know if he's going to make it. But seriously, Shelby had to mourn the change in our plans for school and work and travel. And one night we went to our small group, our young married small group. And we were all sitting in the hot tub, except for Shelby. She just had her feet in the hot tub. And someone says, hey, Shelby, why why aren't you getting in? And she, and she just starts to sob. She's like, I'm pregnant, you know. She shares with this group for the first time that, that she's pregnant. And then all of a sudden, this other girl in the hot tub starts sobbing, crying. And she stands up and walks out. And her husband falls after her. And I was like, we're eating hot dogs and, like, chips and dip and sitting in the hot tub. Like, this is an amazing day. Why are we all crying? I was so confused. Like a totally clueless man. I was lost, and this girl comes back out after five or 10 minutes, she gets back into the hot tub, and she pre- proceeds to tell us that she's gone through multiple, multiple miscarriages. I think six, and for her to hear my wife this mourning, crying over the fact that she is having a baby was just too much for her. And I didn't realize it at that point in my life but we don't just mourn when someone dies. We need to mourn the loss of a lot of things. Many times it's our hopes and our dreams. And you see both the women that day were mourning but in totally different ways. And Shelby mourned the loss of her plans and timing and had to relinquish those plans to God and guess what, it led to her joy. I'll never forget when they took Jackson and put her on her chest, put him on her chest for the first time. She literally in the video, she groans Enjoy And I'll tell you what: We love being young parents, and we fought God over that in the beginning. And yet, Shelby and I would both say, we wouldn't want it any other way. And the young couple from the hot tub who couldn't get pregnant, they mourned the loss of those children, and they also mourned the loss of their dreams, they decided they were going to adopt. They went through the process of getting ready to have kids through adoption. And once again, Jesus changed their plans. Coolest story. Some random woman at church they had never met before. She knew nothing about them. Walks up to them and says, hey, this is going to sound really weird. I'm really sorry. I don't know you. You don't know me. But I feel like God is telling me to tell you that you should have kids. They were shocked. They went. They tried. They didn't just have one healthy baby naturally, they had three. When I was in Italy standing outside in the rain praying that my wife would be okay, I needed to mourn the fact that, that she was sick instead of traveling through Tuscany, that much of my sabbatical had been a letdown, that much of my plans went down the tube. And it was in the acknowledgement of the loss that I felt God meet me. He was there with me. Psalm 23.4 says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For you are with me. That's Emmanuel. That's one of the greatest lessons of Christmas is God is with us. And his promise is that he will be right there with you as we mourn. For some of you guys, one of the best things you can do this Christmas is to sit down and write out all the things that have gone wrong in your world. To acknowledge them all the letdowns, the broken relationships, to stop saying, ah, it's okay, or I'm not gonna give you know, the, the power for that person to affect me. No, it's affected me. And what happens is when you enter into that sadness, when you enter into that mourning, Jesus promises you, you will reap joy with your seeds of tears, Joy is birth out of mourning. Secondly, joy is birth out of pain. James 1 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James literally says, Consider it pure joy, not if trials come, but when, right? They're coming. And then he says, Trials, not a trial, but trials. James is saying, Consider it pure joy when all the trials come. Consider it pure joy when your plans change twice, followed by your wife getting appendicitis, followed by the plane getting turned around, followed by you being in the hospital for benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. James says, Gabe, consider all that pure joy. Why? He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus is saying, trials are coming. If you let me, I'm going to make those trials stronger. I'm going to make, those, those trials will make you stronger. And we know this to be inherently true, right? That when we put our, our, our complete selves in the hands of Jesus, and we go through these trials, we know if we allow him, they make us stronger. A simple example of this is Alex Kelly. How many of you guys know who Alex Kelly is in here? If you don't know him, you definitely have seen him because he's a massive human being. He's training to become the world's strongest man. And the other day, we were out in the courtyard. He was like, Gabe, let's try to uh, pick up this giant boulder. And I was like, why? It sounds like a horrible idea. And he said something around the lines of like, it'll be fun. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, when I see pain and struggle, my muscles tearing, picking up a giant rock, I see the joy that comes after the pain. Alex knows that the more he lifts, the more pain he puts his muscles through, the more his muscles will tear, the more weight and pressure he'll be able to put his body under in the future. No one experiences the joy of becoming the world's strongest man by avoiding pain and the pressure of more and more weight. They know it's a part of their joy. Think of Jenny Simpson. There's probably a day when she was little when she was running around on the playground and like she could only run for a few minutes. She was like breathing hard and struggling like, why did I have to run? But then what happened? Over, Over the years, she kept putting herself through more pain, pushing herself harder, running longer, going faster, pushing her lungs and muscles to limits she didn't think were possible. And I'm guessing that she would agree that the pain she endured in her training is directly correlated to the joy of winning medals in the Olympics. Think about tattoos. On any given Sunday, you're going to see many full sleeves here at Cornerstone. Almost all of which were done by our very own tattoo artist, Taryn McIlvaney. See? There's one full sleeve right there. But every person with the full sleeve will tell you to get to the joy of a finished product that represents their story, their hopes, their dreams, their life, their passions. In the form of a tattoo on their body, they had to endure hours and hours and hours of pain and suffering under the needle. And the joy of that finished product came through much pain, and that joy is worth it. So is the pain to those people. Before my days at Cornerstone, I was a manager at John Juice. And one day I came home after a long shift and I sat down on the couch and I turned on the TV and the first thing that pops up on the TV is the news and it says, breaking John Wayne International Airport shut down due due to a Cessna 172RG landing gear malfunction. And instantly I'm like drawn in, I'm like, what? This is crazy. I'm hooked. This was a year after 9-11, and so I'm like, anything has to do with a, with a plane, right? That's big, big news. And so I start to focus in on the conversation between the anchor and this expert pilot that they're interviewing. As he describes all that's being done to try to get the landing gear down. Everything from special diving, like pit maneuvers to try to pry the landing gear loose, to one of the guys literally hanging out of the plane beating the landing gear with some giant metal pole to this special hand pump that they've probably pumped a thousand times to see if they could get it down, this manual hand pump. And then he describes the instructions the pilot's been given to dump all the fuel in the event that they have to complete an emergency landing. And after a few minutes of watching the news and listening to all that's being done to try to get this landing gear down, the expert pilot comes on and is like, there's nothing more we can They can do. They can try. They're gonna have to land this this plane on two wheels. So I'll never forget. Again, I'm like watching. Like, are these people? Is are they gonna all die? Are they gonna burn up? Are they gonna make it? It's the craziest thing. There's this helicopter camera. You could see this Cessna coming in to land. They put the Cessna down. Skids for 2,700 feet. Comes to a stop. Everyone lives. Everyone survives. There's no injuries. And that's when the helicopter camera zooms in a little bit more and you see all three people in this plane jump out and like three grown men, like three schoolgirls, are jumping around in circles in pure joy, dancing with each other, just like, we're alive, you know? And then the camera pans in a little bit closer and I was like, that's my buddy Rocky. He shut down the airport, this is amazing. Rocky's the guy that just took me to the hospital for my inner ear thing last week. But here's the moral of the story. The joy I saw in that moment when those three guys survived was birthed out of pain. It was the long painful hours of Rocky studying his aircraft followed by hours and hours of training. Literally putting yourself through the most scary situations of all time when you turn your engine off in midair during flight school and you had a free fall and, and then have to get the engine restarted without freaking out and remaining calm. It was many, many hours of painstakingly practicing how to land a plane, the plane that he ended up putting down, living. Guys, the pain and the preparation leading up to that moment is what allowed for the joy of the three of them to survive. And here's the thing do you think Rocky's the kind of guy that experiences a little pain and suffering in this world and freaks out? No way. He's got some resiliency. When other people might lose it, he doesn't. He's, he remains a person of joy. And so I dropped my wife off at 1 p.m. at the hospital in Italy. She was barely able to move again because of how much pain she was in, and I didn't see her until 6 p.m. the next day. And as difficult as that was for me, as scary and as horrible as that was for me, when I walked into the room and I saw her for the first time, I sobbed tears of joy. Partly because for the first time I knew she was going to be okay, but mostly because all the pain, the fear, the unknown, what was happening to my my wife, it actually put a huge spotlight on how much I desperately love her. The joy of getting to be her husband. The joy of knowing she's mine. And here's the thing, some of you guys are sitting here thinking, yeah, Gabe, that's great. That's easy. Of course you were joyful. (laughs) She lived. She made it. Of course, you found joy in that. But you don't know my loss. You don't know the pain and suffering that I've gone through. Which leads to my third and final point. Real, lasting, deep joy is birthed out of putting all of your hope in Jesus. When I was sitting outside waiting to see my wife, you better believe I was running through the option that she might not make it. And when I finally got to see her, I was sitting in the chair. She had no idea I was in that room, and I was sobbing. I distinctly remember the thought of, like, this day's coming. She's going to bury me one day, or I'm going to bury her. It's not an option. It's happening. And if we put all of our ultimate hope in our wives, our kids, our jobs, our money, our careers, our bodies, our looks, it is only a matter of time until that pain and suffering absolutely takes you out. When those things, those relationships let you down. But when we trust that only Jesus can bear the weight of our lives, when we live in the reality that in this world we're going to have many troubles, but we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world, it's then and only then that we can live out of such an abundance of joy because it's anchored in something that's going to last. Our joy is anchored in something that can never be taken away. And that is the joy the angels are speaking of when they say, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Messiah, Jesus, joy incarnate, he's here. In closing, one of my best examples of this can be found in the Pruitt family that attend here Cornerstone. They've been here for 20 plus years, so we know this family very intimately. Been watching them for a long time. And the Pruitt family, I would argue, they are known for joy, a joy that comes from putting their faith and hope completely in Jesus, and you see it in so many different ways, the ways that they have sacrificially served in this church for so many years, for the ways that they have sacrificially served at CU with with college students for so many years, for the way that they love each other. It's amazing, but one of the best ways that you see their joy is in the way that they love their siblings, Quinn and Alyssa, both of which have some pretty severe mental and physical disabilities. And you want to know what I've seen in this family? I see joy in pain and suffering. I can only imagine how difficult it was for Quinn and Alyssa's parents to, to find out that they were going to be birthed with disabilities, how hard that was, and yet they find so much joy in getting to be their parents. I've seen it. I've seen the joy in all the siblings. And the ways that they've had to persevere through difficulties, always having to watch them to make sure they don't hurt themselves or hurt someone else. Always having to be there sacrificially. Maybe they want to go do something else. It's, like, ah, nah, it's my turn. I'm going to be here to take care of Quinn and Alyssa. I see the pain and suffering, and yet I see the joy that they experience by getting to lay down their life for them. They would tell you that those two bring so much joy to their family. But think about this, trusting Jesus with our lives not only gives us joy in our current and present circumstances, it also gives us future joy when Jesus makes everything that's gone wrong with this world right. Can you imagine the joy that can only be birthed out of pain when Quinn and Alyssa, who have broken bodies today, who aren't able to communicate what's in their hearts today, one day in heaven with restored bodies, finally able to speak, they turn to their siblings, Robbie, Bethany, Hillary, Trent, Krista, Ashley, they turn to them and say, thank you for the ways that you've loved me. Wanted to tell you this for a long time. Today I get to. Thank you for your sacrifice over all those years. Thank you for serving me when I couldn't tell you thank you because you didn't need one. Quinn and Alyssa turn to the whole family and say, now we get to praise Jesus together. That is a joy. That is a worship that could only come out of pain and suffering. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you for the truth that you promised to meet us in our mourning. Father, I thank you for the promise that out of our tears will produce life to the full, a joy, a deep understanding of who you are. You're our comforter. But I pray for all the people in this room right now that find themselves in an the Advent season and a Christmas season. Things are wrong. I pray, Lord, that they would enter into that time of mourning with you, not run from it, not be afraid of it. They would enter into that darkness knowing that you will be there with them. Thank you for the reality that our lives, our hope, our joy is completely found in you and you alone. That when we try to put our ultimate hope in other things of this world, they just can't bear the full weight of our lives like you can. We thank you for this time, the season, to be reminded that you have come into this world, that we get to know you, we get to intimately see how much you love us. We get to love you back. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand?